Hello, and welcome to the Culture Force podcast. We're excited you're here. Now, we know that you're probably listening to this as you drive or work out or whatever you're doing or wherever you are, and you don't have the ability right now to write down every single thing you hear that our guests share, and some of it is world-changing. It's incredible. So we got your back. Kyle and I have created a free ebook that contains every single interview we've done, the highlights of those interviews. And so it's about 20 pages long. If you head over to cultureforce.team, T-E-A-M, and just put in your email address, we'll send you this ebook that has all the best bits of the podcast we've conducted this season. So head over there. Make sure you head over to iTunes and give us a like as well. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us whether you think Kyle did a better job or whether Chris did a better job. Uh, or if you think we just both did a good job, or maybe we both need work. But anyways, we love hearing from you. Head over there for that free ebook. It's a, a treasure trove of some of the best information that I've ever heard from some of these incredible people we've interviewed this season. So thanks for your time, and let's get on with the show. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? It's the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Try to, try to, try to find my way home. Welcome back, Culture Force. We believe that a meaningful life isn't automatic. You have to intentionally design it. You can't just go through the motions. You got to pick up a pen and start writing a great story. Well, today's guest is Scott Schimmel. He is literally writing the book on your personal story. Scott is the president and co-founder of The U School. He has a professional background in higher education, nonprofits, and leadership development. He also designs curriculum. He's a public speaker and author while coaching and consulting with school leaders around the country. We thought it'd be really great to have a conversation with Scott as he looks to create school cultures that encourage students not just academically, but in life. So without further ado, please welcome Scott Schimmel. All right, Scott, welcome, buddy. Man, I'm so excited to have you. So let's get right into it, pal. Let's Uh, do it. Let's do it. That's what we're here for. That's what we're here for. <laughs> tell us tell us how you got involved with your current passion. I'm fascinated with everything that you're doing. Uh, tell us how you got involved. Well, okay. It's a bit of a story. Do I it. After college, I went in to work in something called College Ministry, this organization called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship works on all these college campuses across the country. And that was kind of the, the last thing that anyone expected me to do. I was a business guy. I grew up in a family that didn't go to church. So for me to go into ministry, I think in many levels was is kind of like a, how some people go into the Peace Corps. I want to go do something meaningful for a couple of years, get it out of my system, and then go and build my life. But I ended up doing that work for 10 years. I stayed at this nonprofit for 10 years, working mostly at this school called University of San Diego. And after after about nine years, I at that point realized, gosh, I've known I've known over the, that past nine years hundreds, if not thousands, of college students who'd come through our program. And our particular kind of flair was we want to train students to be leaders. Obviously, there was a there was a spiritual faith component there, faith formation, learn about these big ideas. 
but there was a, a really heavy emphasis on uh, leadership and on influencing the campus culture and sending students off into community service projects and going overseas and learning about culture. So after nine years, I'd known hundreds of students. They'd all been trained. They'd all received top university degrees and they were off into the world. And, and it's actually kind of like a panic attack one night and I was up with one of, one of my kids in the middle of the night. And I started to think like the top 10 or 12 students, former students, alumni that came to mind were not doing anything in their lives at that point that, that we would look at and say, man, look at them go. And then the panic attack was like, if that, what, I mean, what have I been doing for the past nine years? Is this working? So I ended up trying to track down, end up tracking down 400 alumni that had been through, not just the different universities that our ministry was a part of, um, but were out in the world. They were like not 22, 23, but 28, 30, 32 years old. And I wanted to know, at first I was asking them two questions. Uh, the question first was like, tell me about your faith eight years out of school. Because that's, that's certainly what, something we're trying to uh, see a deposit in and a return on. Um, but then secondly, tell me about how you're making an impact where you are. Because that was the whole reason we were doing that. If, if we can influence a bunch of college kids, they're all going to go off into different industries and, and change the world. And so 400 conversations, 397 sounded the exact same. And it was this, um, hey, thanks for checking in on me. Nobody ever asked me how I'm doing anymore <laughs> uh, about my faith. Eh, I'm, you know, I still, I still have my beliefs. I still uh, attend a church, but it's not the way it used to be. And I don't sense uh, a great adventure. I don't sense closeness to God. I don't, that's just, it's still part of my life, but it's not my life. And then since you're asking about spiritual impact, like uh, <laughs> I remember one guy, he's like, dude, I haven't been close to God since college. The last thing on my radar is trying to influence other people. I'm just trying to survive. And what I heard then was they would just kind of continue and say, and by the way, I, I, uh, I hate what I do for a living and I'm lonely. I don't have any friends. And it just, if that sounds depressing, it was, it was extremely depressing, not just to hear those stories, people I cared about, but also to do like this deep self-examination. What have I been doing? What have we been doing? And is there ultimately a different way to think about working with young people, to think about working with students. And so that was, that was really the impetus, like this deep personal crisis, <laughs> identity crisis. Have I been actually impacting people's lives? And then I think in many ways, discovering a problem that was right in front of me and in front of a lot of people. So that's, that's the origin story. Wow. Wow. So, okay. So I got to go back a little bit because you said mm-hmm. one sentence that I started <laughs> AD and D out on was, uh, 397. Well, what about the other three? Oh, yeah, yeah. Three. They were awesome. <laughs> like, <laughs> like amazing. Oh, gosh, I'm so close to God still. And I am making such an amazing three, impact where I am. Three out of, out of 400. Yeah. And, I, uh, and, and, and part of that was I was not tracking down people that were in full-time ministry work. I just felt like, ah, you're fine. You're doing good. You got the support system. But it was like normal people, you know, that accountants, lawyers, uh, uh, teachers, normal folks. And they were the ones who were pretty bummed. Wow. So Scott, you got, oh, hold go on, Kyle, let me get something in <laughs> for crying out loud. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. I appreciate that. Uh, I just want to, uh, you know, reiterate a little bit of what you said. I have uh, a son who is uh, 22. He'll be 23 here in mm. just a couple of days. Uh, he's at the University of California in San Diego. I have a daughter 
who will be a junior this year. Uh, and so I, I mixed with the group of kids, mm-hmm. the age group mm-hmm. you're talking about. And I would simply say, I see it. You know, I, they get sold out in that they love hanging out and, and being a part of something and InterVarsity yeah. and the church and the organizations mm-hmm. that kind of provide that when there's an organized structure around them. And then you kind of just see them walk away. Like once the structure yeah. leaves, whether it's college or friends that, who have moved on and, yeah. and gone on, they just, they don't know what to do. It's like we, we've prepared them to sort of have fun and get mm-hmm. together and gather and have pizza parties or pool parlor, a dodgeball, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and, there, and there's yeah. faith-based components to it. But it's like we didn't equip them hmm. once they, they left. And it's not that we didn't equip them. You know, you, you've shared stories and everything. Yeah, we tried, right. But <laughs> um, what do you uh, attribute that to completely? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I see it. You know, I talk to my kids about it. And, you know, I think they want to do more. This generation mm-hmm. of yeah. Gen Z and, and the millennials, they want more right. to do and impact the world than any generation ever before us. Probably all of the generations combined. You know, when I grew up, yeah. I, nobody cared if uh, I bought a pair of shoes and went on another kid somewhere That's else right. in the world or I bought a sweatshirt and it went to invest in microloans. Yeah. It just didn't happen. But these kids do. But yeah. in many ways, they just don't know how to get there. Yeah. Well, I think what I've learned is that there's a lot of source to those problems. One, and I can sound, forgive me, I can sound pretty cynical sometimes. I don't, I don't feel cynical. I just feel like name it as it is. But I think a part of the issue is that um, young people don't have the role models who are doing that well. So when it comes to figuring out how life works, they, and this is what students will tell me, young people tell me, I'm, I'm trying to look through a lens of wholehearted living or, or living well or living, living a meaningful life. And, and they look around and there's not a lot of that. They don't get to see that are on fire, whether or not it's just for their faith or, or even beyond that. Like I, someone that would say, I know who I am and I'm, and I'm living out my beliefs. Someone that says, I, I have a purpose and I get up every day to go and solve problems. I can't wait to work tomorrow. Uh, someone that has really deep, meaningful, authentic relationships. Those three big pillars, I don't think many young people would say, I don't know anybody that would live that well. So I think one part is what we're modeling. And then the other part is there's this fallacy I've, because now I work with mostly high school students, that if you don't quote unquote understand who you are yet when you're a teenager, I think most people would say, no problem. Of course, how could you? But then the fallacy is, uh, so what you need to do is go to a good school. And in that environment, in those four or five years, you're going to be exposed to different thinking and different ideas and different people. Don't worry. You'll find yourself there. You'll find out who you are, what you believe in, what you should do in this world, how to do meaningful relationships well. And because I've worked in college and the university world, uh, I haven't found a university yet that actually can deliver on that promise. There's no robust plan to take students through that thoughtful process. It's just this environment that's a really fun and engaging. I mean, I love college. Um, but then when you're in college and you haven't you know, found yourself yet, the same people that told you in high school, don't worry about it yet, will say the same thing. Don't worry about it. Just, just go get a good job. And then, you know, it doesn't have to be the perfect job and you don't have to know everything about life. No one does when they're 22. Uh, and then, so I just kind of fast forwarded that and said, okay, how does that how does that theory work at 28, 30, 32 years old? And they're the ones saying, yeah, still, I'm still as vague as ever about who I am and what my purpose is and how to have meaningful relationships. You know, and that's so, interesting. <laughs> uh, just to interject there real quick, mm-hmm. 
is that um, it's fascinating you say that the transformative, transformative years of high school to just maybe their freshman or sophomore year of college is so important for a kid. And I don't want to overly dramatic, uh, yeah. dramatically say that, uh, just, you know, to say, well, of course, everyone knows that you're going through a lot. But uh, let me add this mm-hmm. to it. I interviewed Simon Sinek um, a few years back, uh, and he's, he's had the uh, TED Talk. It's been viewed over mm-hmm. 100 million times, you know, the power of the question, why? And he wrote the book, mm-hmm. the, the Power of the Question, Why? And I asked him, hey, when should you have your why? When do most people have mm-hmm. their why? And he immediately shot back, almost everyone I've ever spoken to knew their why by the time they were 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And so if you're at 22, chances are you've yeah. already developed and grown into your why. You just haven't known, you don't know how to manifest it and pull it out completely. Right. But if you're not pushing into these kids at, at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, you have mm-hmm. uh, a tremendous opportunity to do that. But also, if you don't, there's a real chance someone else will and help them develop a why that won't be as positive mm-hmm. or encouraging right. or focused yet. And I, and part of the way that we got connected was the work that I've been able to do with a transition organization for special forces, the guys like Kyle. And I, I've had the opportunity for the last five or six years to work with adults, like older guys, people in their 30s, 40s, some 50s. And so much of what we've been trying to do with them is actually, to your point, help them process what they've been through in the military, but uh, help them discover and uncover who they are. And so much of the conversations that I have with those gentlemen are, are about what it was like when they were young. It's, it's teenage stuff. And uh, to your point, I believe all the ingredients for who you are and why you're here are there. It's just a matter of creating the environment for somebody to even have to ask that question. Even if all we did was ask an 18-year-old, tell me why you think you're here. That alone would be a really thoughtful, productive exercise. And we could do so much more. Thoughts to ponder there, Chris. Thoughts to ponder. I've taken us down a path that's <laughs> fascinating, but not necessarily directly related to our podcast. But It's uh, all good. <laughs> you know, it's interesting Well, it is too. about culture. Would, it's about culture. I, it is. Yeah. It is. And, mm-hmm. you know, culturally, I, I would go so far as to say, um, that in American universities and colleges, one of the keys to their success is wrapping up the students' personal identities in the status of the school, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, if you go to USC, you're a Trojan mm-hmm. and that's your status mm-hmm. symbol. And I'm not knocking USC, they're a great university. I'm just saying that it, it's very common in today's uh, American mm-hmm. higher learning to, to wrap the student's personal identity with that school. You know, it's interesting, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. So if, if the kids are getting into that stage in life, 19, like you said, 22, and uh, they haven't figured out their why, they haven't figured out their personal identity, that school fits that that void. Yeah, go, I think go the path of least resistance is what most people do mm-hmm. out of confusion. So what is expected of from you or of you, yeah. whether it's by your family or by your university, I think most people. And so then there's some version of just go be happy, go earn some money, look out for yourself, maybe be nice and, and, and buy organic food. But beyond that, there's not much thoughtfulness or challenge there. So then Scott, so then you go, you know, I'm going to start a business. Mm. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah, I met two guys, two older guys, who I shared really the exact same story I shared with you guys in the beginning of this. 
And I, they more or less looked at each other and said, we've been looking for you. And these two older guys, uh, Greg Imamoto, Sean Parr, uh, we founded U-School together eight years ago. And their experience had been working as corporate consultants for really big brands, Starbucks, Nike, Sony, huge companies. And their observation was there's a lot of very successful people who run these big companies who are also relatively miserable internally. They feel lost. They don't know why they're here. They don't believe in what they do. And so they, these two guys had been really kind of developing this idea at, from an observation. Like, where do you send somebody if they don't know themselves? Where, you know, kind of like if you, if you have a dog and it's not being a very good dog, you can send them away for a week or two and they come back like a better dog, dog training school. Where's the school for people? And the week before I met these two guys and shared that problem, they said, you know, we could maybe do something around that to help some middle-aged people find themselves. But when does that all start? And, it, and they said, it's got to be, it's got to be teenage years, it's got to be high school, because you make all these decisions that sets you on a path. It, it gets harder and harder, obviously, to change that path, unless you have something dramatic happen. So they said, we're, we're looking for you. We're looking for someone who knows students and understands how to design curriculum and and it became, it, without them, there's no way I don't think I would have had the confidence to start something new on my own. Uh, but leaning on their experience as entrepreneurs was really helpful. So, so let's, let's pull on that a little bit from your mouth too. So what do you guys at U-School, what do you guys do now? What's your main focus, your main products now and services? Yeah, focus on middle schools and high schools. And that can be public, private, or charter schools. And we come alongside schools, principals particularly, to help them through four things, consult with them to help them have a vision for students who flourish and thrive by the time they graduate. Every student would be able to answer these core life questions that we're talking about. And that would be an expectation that they would have. And if that then becomes a school's vision, then you need a way to have a strategy for that. So number one, uh, uh, professional development, trainings, training teachers and adults on campus to have these thoughtful conversations with kids. Then uh, equipping parents to have a different relationship, especially throughout the adolescent teenage years when it's so difficult, but equipping parents how to have different conversations too. And then finally, the bread and butter for what we do is curriculum for students to design a meaningful life. So we have a number of courses and curriculum that helps students process these thoughtful questions at the right time with their peers, with mentors, out loud in writing and on video. Mm. Talk about hitting it from three different angles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been and, complex. And, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't and, know and, a more complex organization than a than a like a public high school. Maybe a church, as a lot of my experience. I, I mean I, seriously I almost three years working at a church, I I can confirm. <laughs> That's the truth. Um, hey, so, you know, you hit on a, an interesting topic where it feels like we, you've got all these people who've gone, you know, through these programs early on and then they graduate mm-hmm. into life and they're stuck. Uh, we have all these leaders that are, are dissatisfied, you know, which is interesting based on, you know, Kyle and I started this podcast because we felt so strongly about uh, the importance of a, a strong culture and a healthy culture within an organization mm-hmm. or company or church or military operation. And yeah. so many people tell us, oh, it's just another leadership thing. Even though we even had a conversation with uh, a researcher the other day. We said, it's really just a circle, whether you have good leadership or good culture. And I said, 
you know, that's bunk. And that's why we started this podcast. That's why we're working on this book. Uh, the premise that great leadership is all you need. We've spent so mm -hmm. much time. We have had leaders go through so much training. We have had so many people mm -hmm. take so many assessments. Yeah. And yet, 79% so of the people still hate their jobs. 79% of leaders still frustrated with their teams. And if it was mm -hmm. all just leadership, why hasn't it worked out? And so the, our premise has been, if you create a great culture that where people can thrive and you get the right mm -hmm. people in there, it starts to create this momentum and this energy where actually yeah. all the training you got from leadership pays off because now it's in right. a thriving organization. And if people would spend more time growing the culture and not as much mm -hmm. time sending individuals mm -hmm. off for leadership training, yeah. they would actually make a difference within the organization. People may start to get better aligned with their jobs and their mm -hmm. positions and, mm -hmm. the, and their teams and see a higher return on their investments. And so I feel like that's kind of what you've stumbled on yeah. is you've mm -hmm. said, hey, all this training we were doing for these, these students, it's not paying off. So let's yeah. just go at it from a different tactic. And I think what yeah. I hear you saying is it is paying off now. Yeah, and it is to look at culture, I think it's way more complex. It's not as direct. It's not as tangible. Going to a seminar or getting a certificate in leadership or conflict, that's, that is tangible. I can say I did that this year. But culture is abstract as much as it is tangible. It's complex. It is way more than just one person's effort. And so I think we, what I see in schools is people default to what they know and what they know is how to manage things and yeah. just keep going, keep the, keep the lights on. And to actually think thoughtfully about culture is, a, I think, an extremely rare quality. I haven't seen it very often where someone thinks like that just because they've made those observations. It's true. You know, Kyle shares the story and I'll let him elaborate on it. But uh, most people think, oh, Navy SEAL, it's hell week. And Kyle's uh -huh. like, you don't really get a full-fledged SEAL status until you've been in there two or three years. And so mm. it's easy for a company to invest and send someone away for a, a day or a week. But it's real mm -hmm. hard to spend the next two or three years trying to change everything to create yeah. something that's much better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Nailed, Kyle, you, you can't just nod a Kyle to podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Sometimes I forget, that, you know, we've got the video going and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, oh, can't everyone see me? Just, just nodding away over here. Blowing oh, your spot on. You're spot on, Chris. You know, you really are. Um, and we've thought about this for, for quite some time. And, you know, what you're doing, Scott, is you're, you're really trying to impact that culture. And, and tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Correct me. But eventually you're kind of working yourself out of a job. With each, with each one of these schools, right? Because you are going yeah. in and you're hitting it from those three different aspects with the parents, with the teachers, with the curriculum, with the student, helping them identify. And eventually that culture of those three, mm -hmm. those three main focuses start to start to embed in terms of the, the curriculum. They start to become part of the environment. And slowly, I'm assuming mm -hmm. you guys can start slowly working yourselves out of there. It part of the process that I've found to be most helpful is listening, creating mechanisms for people to listen to one another. And when I think about, when I've seen leaders who seem to understand culture and how to influence it and cultivate it, they are constantly listening and creating avenues and mechanisms and environments for people to share. And so that is, to your point, that is how we're trying to work ourselves out of a job. And the only way I can imagine what we're doing to be scalable is if 
people start thinking differently. Huh, maybe we should actually listen to students. Maybe those of us who are making decisions on behalf of students should ask them what they think. Yeah. And then it, it takes a while. I watched I just had a conversation this morning about that. And I'm like, hey, why don't you? And I, in my head, I'm like, this is, so, this is so common sense. But if you haven't heard this before, and so I'm like, hey, have you thought about asking students what they think about when they come back to school in the fall and they've been in quarantine and racial injustice and pandemic? Have you, have you considered asking them how they might want the first week or two to go. And it was mm. like, what do you mean by that? I'm like, I don't know, just ask them. They'll probably come up with better ideas. So we tend to make decisions for people that we don't even know what they're dealing with or what they think or what they want. So, But yeah. I know better. I know curriculum. I know, I know it needs to be taught. Yeah, yeah. I know kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, their heads are just spinning. When are we going to talk about this? When are we going to talk about yeah. this one thing? And then yeah. two months later, you know, mm-hmm. I get it. I know you guys got mm-hmm. some stories about working with a team member or, or what you guys did to, to impact the situation. I know you got some great stories over there. Mm-hmm. Come on, don't be holding out on us, Scott. Well, I was thinking there, and Chris, particularly since you've worked in a church and I've done a lot of work inside churches and churches and schools have very similar um, dynamics, I think. And one of the dynamics I heard, I heard Patrick Lencioni is a leadership author and speaker. He said this once. He was on this little obscure podcast, and he he does you know management. He's Fortune 500 companies, but he's also a person of faith and works with churches. And so the question teed up for him was, uh, Patrick, what's the number one problem you see inside faith-based organizations? And he's like, Oh, it's easy. People are too nice. And as soon as he said that, I saw, I think, saw the same connections within school. And, and people who work inside schools can actually be really mean. There's a lot of big thoughts and feelings in education. But by and large, what that means, I think, in an organization is we don't tell each other the truth often enough. That's, that's the version of being nice. We just let people keep having their behavior and not addressing it, not confronting it. So the story that came to mind was... Uh, a year and a half ago or so, I was consulting, working in this organization, and there was one of their main leaders who had been there for a couple of years. And in that first conversation I had with this young guy, he let me know how little he respected the senior leader. Couldn't stand him, didn't, and just openly shared his, I would call it contempt for the senior leader. And so that was, I was a head scratcher. Cause I'm like, I'm a stranger. We've never met before and you're bashing your boss. And then uh, I was brought in on an engagement for at least a year to come and work and develop some organizational health internally. And I just decided, I think my temptation would be for that guy that was really contemptuous and, and negative would be just to like uh, not give him any airtime, not give him any focus or attention but I think that's my version of being nice, being nice, meaning I'm not going to really address or confront. So rather I just decided to start meeting with him a lot and every couple of weeks sit down with him. And I went and watched him in action, watched him lead his team, watched him do his work. And I would just, as painful as it was, act as a mirror back to him and just say, you know, you seem really negative. You don't seem to enjoy this here. You don't seem to respect where you work. And I just, like, out of my curiosity, why do you work here? (laughs) And then what he started to say was, well, it's a job. And it's a good paying job. And I need a job. And I would just say, like, but don't you want more than that? Like, that's just, that doesn't seem like a great reason. 
you don't even seem to be effective at what you're trying to do. Do you even, then it was like, do you even know what you're here to do? And he's like, well, no, no one's ever really told me what my job is, what my expectations are. So long story short, uh, this young guy started to continue to share his contempt and ultimately just seemed like an untenable situation. And so, um, with that idea of like, let's not be nice, but let's be loving through uh, a lot of truth and a lot of grace. Let's help this guy get out of here because this is bad for him. It's bad for the organization. And it ultimately doesn't seem like it's going to turn a corner despite coaching and intervention. So we ended up uh, uh, letting him go. And it was one of the worst situations I've been through where people didn't understand why we're letting him go. And especially in today's employment environment, you can't really share details. Like (laughs) he was a bad dude. (laughs) He hated it here. (laughs) He wouldn't respond to coaching. Like we had to kind of be pretty airtight on that. Um, But to then see the organization through weeks and months start to flourish again and start to have more honest conversations and hire the next person with more clarity, more expectations um, so I, I look back on culture change work, culture work, and that's that's an example to me that that's what it feels like to me a lot. It's having the courage to ask the hard questions, to be the mirror, not just once. I think that's easy or easier, but to continue to do it and hold it, hold the line, reflect back the values, um, try to unpack what's underneath the surface. And it's, it's to me, it can be really exhausting, but that's the work that I think you need to do. Mm. You know, um, you said two things that I think are, are really interesting. One is uh, holding people accountable seems to mm-hmm. be easy when it's just a, a document. You have these matrices that you need to kind of hit or these goals. You walk in and, and, and this guy has a, a goal he has to hit. Who You were for him. He has a goal. You have a goal he has to hit or you have to hit. Um, it's, it can be frustrating because it, it really sometimes just comes to that. Uh, but when we talk about culture, one of the things we were having a conversation about just the other day was that so many people do rely on these assessments to figure out where there are issues that need to be fixed or where growth needs to happen, blah, 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 all that stuff. The DISC, uh, the Barrett's, uh, you know, all that stuff. The Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram. Um, and my premise has always been, dude, just get out of the office. What you mm-hmm. did, yeah. go have a conversation. You know, wh- right. why are you struggling? Why do you not like it here? What, is there something going on? Does your mom... Mm-hmm. Is your mom sick? Uh, is, your, is your dog sick? You know, sometimes there are extenuating circumstances. You just don't understand why this guy seems or this gal seems so down all the time. But we never want to have conversations. We always think, oh, it can't be that easy. It can't be as simple as just me getting out of the office and getting to know these people that, right. that would inspire them to work harder for me. You know, I worked for a guy and um, it, was a, it was overall a great organization, very well respected uh, within the community. But we never saw him. Um, mm. they never seemed to appreciate what you did for them. Um, mm. And when they did speak, it was often you hadn't done enough. And, mm. and so it created this environment where most of the team would have taken a bullet uh, for this, this organization or, the, or this person, if only they would have showed an ounce yeah. of appreciation right. uh, for them. But unfortunately, what happened is there was this massive turnover all the time. Um, mm. Because after a while, it's draining. And it's like, I mean, all you had to do was get out of the office and tell people yeah. you, you were grateful for their hard work and appreciated what they had right. done. And that would have changed the entire organization top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, so why is that so hard for people to do? You make it seem so simple. I, the way I stated it, it makes it seem yeah. so simple. Right. Um, why is it so hard? Why don't, I don't know people do been, it? Well, I don't know if that's been modeled. <laughs> so again, it goes back to <laughs> what does success look like? 
and apparently success. I remember I had, a, I had a boss, maybe similar to you, but when we first sat down as he took on the job and I, and he said, you know, let's figure out this working relationship. He said, I just want you to know that I'll be available anytime you want to come talk to me. And I remember walking away from that meeting and I was like, may I never be like that? Because what that tells me is he's not engaged, doesn't care. And it's up to me. And oh. we call, you know, obviously there's like servant leadership and uh, whatever you want to call it, but that just seems contrary to at least how I want to be treated. And may I not be like that. So sometimes what we don't get modeled can be a really good source of education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a second point you pointed out and I want to share it. Uh, Cause I, you know, speaking of modeling, loving through truth, Loving through truth. Um, is that what you were going to say, Chris? No, uh, but yeah. maybe it could be. Um, is I don't think enough team members and employees see work today as a two-way street. Meaning mm. it's always and often the organization is evil. They're trying to take advantage mm. of me. They don't do enough for me. I'm not. And so there's almost zero commitment other than they show up. They do their hours, eight to five, they take their hour lunch, you know, mm. and then they'll come back a minute early. And, and not yeah. that they should, I'm not trying to, that's not my point I'm trying to make here. My point is, it just feels often like a one-way street. You know, mm. they're in, everyone's frustrated with their job, but it's like they don't feel as if they have a responsibility to grow the company. Let me share a story with you. Yeah. I was doing um, a review with a, a gal one day and she, she comes in and she's wanting She's wanting a, uh, uh, after us probing and doing some questions, I gave her a raise. And, um, you know, it was a $2,000 raise. It was about a, a 10%, not a 10%, gosh, she wasn't making 20, but it must be like a 4% <laughs> raise. But mm-hmm. we, had, we had continued this year over year. So, I mean, it was, she was making very good money for the role she was in. And uh, she came to me and said, well, I was expecting a 7% raise, which should have been like, you know, 15, 20%. Don't quote me on these percentage numbers, but it was it was ridiculously high for yeah. someone in a role that was was highly um, uh, professional. Meaning that it was we right, could have right. it was just a role we could have put in, but transactional. You know, we, mm-hmm. But we valued longevity, we valued loyalty, and so if you stayed in mm-hmm. the role, you 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 made some decent money. And I looked at her and said, "Well, I can understand that. You know, you certainly we certainly appreciate you. I appreciate everything you do around here. What makes you think hmm. that I should go back and reexamine why?" And she gave me an example of why she felt she needed more money. And it was a good project she had done. You know, she said she'd saved us some money um, and by doing this and, and streamlining these processes. And in my mind, and this may come, make me come off as, as maybe out of touch, but in my mind, I was saying, well, gosh, what do we pay you for? I mean, isn't that why you're here is to figure out processes and make them better huh? and do it? And <laughs> it, it just felt like anytime they had yeah. made them needle move, they just deserved all of the... Um, day, gosh, I'm starting to sound like Gordon Gecko for crying out loud. Um, (laughs) I I just meant, you know, I just, I've been on the other side where I felt like I worked hard and felt taken advantage of, but also Mm. been on the other side where I just felt like I couldn't get the team to buy in. They didn't, they didn't appreciate everything we're doing and and how uniquely we offered things and did things. And it just feels like a, a sort of a larger issue with society Um, they don't see it sometimes as, hey, this is a two-way street. And when it's thriving Mm -hmm. in a great culture, it's a very, very strong two-way street where the leadership's taking care of the team, the team is taking care of what leadership needs to do, and we're just creating Mm -hmm. this this vortex of awesomeness that's a hurricane that's sort of dominating the workforce and the workplace. Mm -hmm. 
Do you see it th- that same way? I've done a, a very terrible way of explaining mm. it, but I, hopefully you got the gist of what I'm trying to say. Well, I, I absolutely agree that um, we need to help young people reimagine what work is. And uh, that's why I really do like servant leadership. I think, though, most people look at servant leadership through the lens of the executive level, top down. But what you're talking about, if if you could get, let's say, both sides of the organization looking out for the interests of others, just as a rule, as a principle, like I'm here to look out for other, put other, put other people's interests ahead of mine. If you could, obviously, if you can get bosses to do that, that's that's amazing. But imagine if you can get frontline workers to do that, entry level workers to do that as well, to think and and ask what problems am I here to solve, and how can I add value today, and how can I put other people's interests first, like that. All of a sudden, you then see things tipping in the right direction on both sides. Um, and I think people respond to that well. I think people always respond and flourish in an environment where they feel like they're being taken care of. I have a st- this a student I talked to right before the shutdown. She's, uh, she's a senior at a local large public high school. And, and I just was asking her questions about her teachers. And, and she had made this comment that there's this one teacher she really liked. And uh, I said, well, why do, you, why do you like that teacher? And she said, well, um, I don't know. He, he just, he's cool. And I said, and it was a math teacher. And I said, are you good at math? Is that why you like the class? And she said, no, actually, it's not one of my strongest subjects. I don't really like math, but I work harder for him. And I was like, why do you work harder for him? She's like, I don't know. I think he just, I think he has shown interest in me. And I, I said, well, how did that, how does that come across? And she said, I don't know, like maybe once a month he asked me, he knows I play volleyball. So once a month he asked me how volleyball is going. <laughs> I was like, wait, 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 that's it? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. I said, so once a month he asks you how volleyball is going and you work harder for him, <laughs> even though you don't like it? She's like, yeah. And back to kind of that, this is maybe simpler than we think it is. That's actually a pretty simple thing. And now she shows up and contributes to the culture of his classroom and probably helps other students engage more, pay more attention. She certainly is open about how she likes him, which is positive vibes. So yeah, I think there's, there's, how do we lean towards one another everywhere we go? And it, it will get, and I think we'll all get our needs met, but more importantly, we'll all flourish. Yeah. You know, Kyle, the SEALs, let me ask you this. The SEALs represent a large organization, the United States of America, and they work within a massive <laughs> complex uh, organization called the U.S. Military, which you've already shared, is maybe a little dysfunctional from time to time. So, how do you frontline guys get so focused on the goal where you're so unified and you, mm-hmm. everyone seems to be bought in to the message, in spite of maybe a little dysfunction here and there within the organization? It, it really comes down to empowerment in the sense that there's leadership at every single level. So when a, when a leader has a mission or an objective, uh, a strategy, whatever it might be, uh, they'll disseminate it down, right? And everyone understands their objective. Everyone understands where they wanna go. There's communication at every level, but there's also leadership at every level. Hmm. So an allowance of that leadership to actually be executed, meaning like, hey, if the, if the low guy on the totem pole, he's in charge of, you know, three or four things, mm-hmm. he's allowed to make choices that could, that could fail the mission. Mm-hmm. That could really fail the mission. 
but he's allowed to make them in a way that is communicated to everybody else, but it's also on him and there's a responsibility on him to make sure that it doesn't fail. So if he's getting close to failure, it's on him to make sure he communicates that up, right? If he's getting close to failure, he's, he's, it's his job to communicate that out. And he sees that model down. Right. And he's constantly seeing that modeled through all of the levels of leadership, right? The Mm -hmm. chief, if the chief is getting ready to, uh, to have something get close to failure, he's going to, you know, push that up to the the ground force commander. If the ground force commander is going to have, um, you know, mission Mm -hmm. failure, he's going to be pushing that up to the the joint operational center, whatever it Mm -hmm. might be, you know? So, it's leaderships that are at every level and more importantly, the, the communication to ask, ask for help. Thanks. Scott, and thanks you know, for coming it's in. Famous. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. <laughs> you see it on the movies you hear about in the books and the stories, right? Like the, the infamous call, call for fire, right? If as a ground force commander, if I'm going to have to call in uh, artillery or I'm going to have to call in a gunship or something like that, right? There's a reason for that. You know, especially in special forces, we're normally going in quiet. Hmm. Our, our mission is usually to be undetected or clandestine in a sense. Um, so when we have to bring in a gunship or bring in a call for fire, that's when stuff has gone wrong. Not always, not always, but a lot of times, uh, you know, maybe we're in a, in a, in a retreat or maybe we're withdrawing. Who knows? I know Kyle, I'm rambling stop, a little bit. Stop interrupting me trying to interrupt you. Um, <laughs> I want to take it one level. By the way, Scott, Welcome, thanks Scott. For, Scott, thanks for coming on our podcast where it's just Kyle and I having a conversation. We appreciate <laughs> your expertise. Um, I want to take it one more level on the communication thing because you have also shared with me, not only do you guys have great communication up and down and plus authority and autonomy, which in sort of the leader, and great leadership up and down the organization, um, but also you're able to communicate. You talked about going in silently, but you've been able to communicate uh, super silently. For instance, when you share the story that when you and your buddy Kyle, uh, ironically, that's his name too, uh, you kneeled down, yes, kneeled down and on the landmine and in the desert, and he pulled back IED, and, and IED to you know uh, to be official, and he, he pulled back and then told everybody to drop comms because if they communicated, they could trigger a detonator, and so they had to learn how to communicate even with signs. Um, to save lives, which takes communication to another level uh, when you're thinking about hmm. it, which is allows you to thrive and succeed in ways that, hmm. well, honestly, you can save your life. Um, but if organizations could do the point where they didn't even have to communicate, but they just knew the signs and, the, and they saw the messages and, and even Scott, what you're doing, mm-hmm. I think that would be sort of this holy grail of operational side of things within an organization. As Jim Collins said, great, uh, great companies and organizations over communicate. And so learning how to communicate different ways at different styles yeah. at different times can literally save the entire organization. At, at yeah. How I much more, how much more I've, has that been a problem lately with distance work and virtual work? And because my world is schools, obviously, but when you have teachers who didn't have clear communication with students inside the classroom and now a teacher's trying to imagine 30 kids or a typical high school teacher is 150, 180 kids. And you just don't know. You don't have the same cues. You don't know how to use the same symbols. And how much more do we need to establish over, like I love that phrase, over communication. 
It's rare to see someone do that. Yeah. And I think it comes down to really in leadership and organizational patience, right? Uh, We gloss, we really gloss in, in private sector over that aspect of organizational patience. It takes uh, a Navy SEAL three to four years, really, to really truly understand how to communicate with the entire team, with the entire troop on a mission like that, right? Mm. And mm. so we are we are uh, very impatient as as companies to say, hey, mm. let's let's spend four years training someone up to ensure that mm-hmm. they uh, they're communicating mm. throughout the organization. So I mean. That's that's a challenge. That's a challenge, mm. right? All right. right so wait, right now, the, our listeners are going, "Wait, Kyle nailed on a, on an IED." Tell us the rest of the story. I'll tell you what, we'll uh, op, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, we'll wrap up today's episode with Kyle sharing a story because it's an amazing story. <laughs> but, Actually, they think he, he was on a landmine, so he was <laughs> IED. I was IED. in WW two. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, so you're listening. We, we didn't, we're not just going to gloss over that. Um, because it's a, it's a great story, but. Okay. So, uh, let's get back to you, Scott. Okay. Enough about us. Yeah. Enough about you guys. <laughs> I only agree to this to talk about myself. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I only agreed to have Scott on, so I wouldn't have to talk. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. We love you, buddy. Got any cool stories? What comes to mind is something that is happening currently live. Oh, very cool. That, it's a cool a school that I'm starting to uh, work with. And initially they reached out because we have a product that they're interested in. But in that conversation, I, I'm always asking questions. I've learned to ask questions around I, I, organization we call it vision. Um, but in, in my vernacular, it's like, why do you want to do that? <laughs> why? What are you trying to do here? What's the end goal? What and then, and specifically for 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 schools, what is the uh, what does success look like from a student perspective? And education, kind of like every industry, there's a lot of buzzwords and vernacular that it's pretty vac. It doesn't mean much, and if if unless you explain what it means. So schools have a lot of buzzwords, uh, personalized learning, uh, global thinkers, innovation, like. Blah, blah, blah. That's what that says to me. You guys don't know what that means. So asking questions around why are you trying to do that? What would that be like? What would a student, and this specific question I always ask, what would a student uh, say, think, and do if, if you were successful? What would, they, what would they sound like? What would come out of their mouths? What would go in through their heads? And then what would they do? What would they act like? How would they behave differently? And that, as you mentioned, like a hack, I think it's a pretty simple, it's a pretty simple exercise that gets to clarity way more than most organizations do like an offsite for their mission statement and purpose and vision, all that stuff. But asking like, why, so why are you doing that? So I'm asking that question for this one particular school that reached out for one little tiny product that we have, and it's turned into likely a multi-year engagement because they don't know how to answer those questions. They haven't in a long time or maybe ever defined what a student would be like if they were successful. So the end product. And then the second layer of questions that we're now digging into is around their people strategy. So the same question, if you had a thriving culture, what would, what would your staff, what would someone on your staff, someone on your team, 
What would they sound like? What would go through their heads? And what would they do? So what would they say, think, and do? And once it, I think what I've learned, if you haven't defined that and you haven't brought in clarity on that, and if everyone's on a consensus to those things, then you're just playing around. You're just making up stuff as you go. You don't really have a clear strategy. So that every conversation we have, that's where we're starting. And it's a really simple lens for me because if you don't know where you're headed, what's, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're going to get there. I'm writing that down. That's good. That's good. Um, if you had a thriving culture, what would your team sound like, think like, and behave like? It's a good question. Real simple, basic. Um, uh, Scott, what do you think is the most impactful thing you've done throughout your, your My uh, life? career? <laughs> well, you know, think, something that you look back on and you say, you know, I can yeah, point to that. Nervous. And that was a turning point, not just for me, but for the entire organization. I, I mean, I, the, I feel like the thing that I do... And and Patrick Lencioni, I think, says this in one of his books. And it's not new, it's not necessarily um, unique to him, but it's asking the dumb questions. I think I've learned to, if I have a question in my head, to share it out loud as as quickly as I think it, and take on the heat for that. Because most of the time, when I ask that question, questions like why are we having this meeting? (laughs) Why do you all meet like this? You know, why don't you meet? Why don't you ever go and sit down with your employees and your teammates and ask them like, why, why don't you do that? Just asking the obvious dumb questions. I think I can't think of anything that I do that's been profound in a moment, but that's seems to be the lever that has the longest influence wherever I go. And, And I think I also known when I start asking those questions, this is either going to go really well or really poorly. And I have been fired from many engagements. And I can only point to the fact that I'm asking the disruptive questions that most people like in the beginning. Oh, yeah, this is going to be fresh. This is going to be good. This is the shakeup that we needed. But then I just keep asking the same questions, uh, especially when people don't change. And that is annoying to people. I think it's really annoying to ask obvious questions. I had a leader who, who basically all he did was ask questions. I even, I used to try and prepare for meetings mm-hmm. by trying to, in advance, think of all the questions I'd be asked. Mm-hmm. And I just started giving up when it came to this guy because it was, he just asked so many questions and I, I liked it. And it, at first it was a little disarming or not, or not disarming, yeah. but um, a little challenging because I, I was like, does he never think I'm ready? Why is he, is he always trying to probe right. for the wrong things? And I discovered it was his leadership style. He liked asking the questions for himself because it helped him learn. It helped him. Um, it taught him sort of the process behind what we were all doing and how we yeah. were doing it. And if he saw something, he would stop and kind of help us. And after a while, I really, really began to appreciate it because it, it, it helped me prepare better. It helped me be a better leader. And really asking all the questions prevented us from doing a lot of stupid things and making a lot of assumptions. And so I appreciated all the questions. And I think great leaders do ask lots of questions overall of their mm-hmm. team and things. Yeah, you know, Maxwell said, don't be the first guy in a meeting to uh, John Maxwell, the, the great business guru, mm-hmm. um, said, don't be the first guy to speak in a meeting. Uh, listen, mm-hmm. and then your questions will be better that you ask. And uh, that's good advice. I, I've, I've done that uh, ever since I read it. Um, 
when I can, when I can remember to think of it and I'm not you know, chomping in the bit to get all my questions. Yeah. Well, else, I, but. I think the other side of asking questions then is also sharing your opinion about it or your observations, or I like the phrase, it seems that, <laughs> and, and to be able to, to be able to hold that loosely, but I, it would actually, I think, be annoying to only ask questions. <laughs> like, what do you think? <laughs> what, what's the best advice you've gotten then? I, Are you just trying to pretend to ask questions? And yeah, no, I, I like that. You know, well, you know, what's the best advice I got? I shared, you know, one of the best things I got is ask a lot of questions. Um, yeah. It helps you learn. Um, have you gotten yeah. similar advice or, or good advice you'd like to share that you wish someone would share with you sooner in your life? Well, I, I don't know if I get advice. I think... I read a lot and watch a lot. And, and so I've learned, I've learned that from people that I would say are my favorite leaders, the most effective leaders, meaning ask questions and then share, be, be willing to have the same courage to ask the dumb questions. You have the courage to state an obvious thing and be completely wrong or to agitate people. And my personality though is, um, peacekeeping, um, harmony. I don't, I don't go around trying to agitate things. That's not, that's not an orientation I have. It's been a learned thing. It's been a learned because I want to be effective and I watch people be effective. And I want to be like them. So I, I don't know if it's advice as much as it's been a, a few people I've seen like, Oh gosh, that's just, that's just really good. That's just really effective. That's and, and not to be agitating for the sake of it. Cause there are people like that and they're highly annoying and disruptive and not helpful. Um, but to do that in a, in a really effective way. Mm. I love that. Have you ever heard that story? And honestly, I, I can't uh, say if it's true or not, but I love that story about the Washington Monument where they asked why five times. Mm-hmm. You guys ever heard that one? No. It's, it's hey, why, why is the Washington, uh, Washington Monument deteriorating? So they go and they figure out after like a couple of years, well, it's because we're using harsh chemicals that are frequently mm-hmm. used to clean the monument. And so they're like, okay, okay, let's try and figure it out. Well, why are the harsh chemicals needed? So they go, they go through a whole process and study and they find out that it's to clean off a large number of bird droppings on the monument. So like, okay, let's figure this out. Let's figure this out. Why are the, the bird droppings on the monument? Well, because there's a large population of spiders around the monument and their food and a source to the local birds. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we got to figure this out. Why are there large spiders in and around the monument? Because vast swarms of insects on which the spiders feed are drawn mm-hmm. to the monument at dusk. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. Well, why are there, why are there swarms of insects <laughs> drawn to the monument at dusk? And they're going through all this. Like, why are there so many insects drawn to the monument at dusk? And they're like, well, it's because the lighting of the monument in the evening attracts the local insects. Mm-hmm. So like they went through years of trying to figure out why the Washington Monument's deteriorating. Yeah. And it was because of the lighting. that's not my kid my kid hey this is podcasting in the age of covid what are you gonna do that's right that's right so i love it um with your stuff that goes into the schools and the curriculums and um how have the schools sort of come back to you and said wow this has been a game changer for us or maybe they haven't i well, not enough have, that's for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I think right now wh- where there's most resonance is around professional development, meaning training teachers. And 
particularly because of COVID and the shutdown, there's, there's more openness than ever from my limited perspective for adults who work with kids to care for kids, for their heart and soul, for their well-being, for their welfare, to care about their personal lives. And there's been uh, momentum towards that over the years by, because of things like school shootings and trauma, uh, depression, uh, increase over the last 12 years of student suicide and anxiety and self-harm. So it's already been moving in that direction where, where it's, it's this like, this can't be business as usual with kids. We have to provide space and, and inside the school system to care for these kids. But because of COVID-19, because in many ways, teachers who have been disconnected from kids' personal lives are now engaged. They're, they're having Zoom calls and they get to see inside kids' homes and see the brothers and sisters in the background or hear about some family scenarios that are, that are hard for kids. Um, or they can't get a hold of kids because there's a lot of kids who's, they don't have access to technology or internet or they have to work for their parents. Um, so more than ever, teachers are like, we have to care about kids. I've, I've sat in on so many school meetings where they're like, we just, all that matters. It doesn't matter about their test scores. It doesn't matter about their proficiency. We just have to care about them. And I love that because I think that's, that's what kids need. They're kids. And so we're seeing a lot of resonance right now with sharing very simple common sense ways to build connections with kids. And interesting making me really excited and hopeful because the, the the connection is if you want students to learn, you have to care for them. So it's like, it's the yin and the yang. It's two sides of the same coin and students will learn better if they feel cared for and taken care of. And by the way, they're kids, children. So they mm, get. Absolutely. I, you give a shout out to my wife. I, I've come home over the last few months and uh, are just, you know, been in here working and I come out and there's kids in the pool. Mm. Um, mm. And I'm like, Hey, who are these kids? They're well, mine. That's, that's They're my kids. Chris. Yeah, Kyle, Kyle was one of those. Um, <laughs> uh, but I'll come in and she's like, "Oh, that's Jessica." Her mom called and she was really stressed mm-hmm. out about teaching and, and learning. And her husband's deployed over in Italy, and they're not sure when he's going to come home, and she was stressed. So I said, "Just bring her over for the day. I'll teach her here." And so she's done that. And, um, and that's not a shout out. Well, it's a shout out to my wife. She's a great teacher. Uh, but that's a shout yeah. out to all the teachers who really have said, hey, uh, I'm, this is happening and uh, I love students yeah. and I'm going to figure out how to connect with them one way or another mm-hmm. and, and help them continue to grow. And yeah. the ones that, that are most at risk and maybe have a yeah. little bit harder lifestyle, I'm going to reach out to them more. So, yeah, I love that. When I think about a leader, uh, and we've, we've touched on this a few times in this conversation, but the idea of modeling well uh if if there were if there was something that i could influence over a leader of an organization it'd be more than anything uh live well and live in, in such a way that other people get to see and watch because no matter how clear the practices are the strategy vision all stuff i don't i think it'll be eroded if who you are doesn't embody those things so there i've learned uh, over this work, uh, that there are, f- I think, five key questions that will help somebody mm, go through a process to align their lives to live well. And there's, and it's different than saying that there's a system you have to follow, or there are things you need to believe 
And if you believe these things, then your life will be better. This, these are open-ended questions that only you can answer. The questions are, uh, what do you believe in? What do you believe to be true? What do you believe to be important? What do you believe to be good and true and beautiful? So what do you believe is number one. Two, what kind of person do you want to be? And in all the roles of your life, what kind of parent, what kind of husband, wife, neighbor, uh, leader, friend, what, who do you want to be? Third is what's, what's your next mission? What's the next problem you really feel like you need to solve and tackle? Fourth is how can you best contribute? What are you bringing to the table? And it's not just talents and strengths. It could be your story, your energy, your curiosity, your, your angst. Uh, and the fifth is who do you belong to? And I've just found in my life and in people's lives uh, that those five questions can help bring a lot of clarity to you in every season. They're not questions you ask and answer once. They're open in any questions. And to, to walk through those, I, I think what I see is people almost returning to their lives, returning to who they're supposed to be. And some people call it your true self, like coming back to yourself, coming back to who you are at your best. And then living that out with other people so that they can see and watch. And I think if you're going to lead a successful culture, lead a successful organization that flourishes, that that not only will you be answering those questions, but you'll be providing answers organizationally to those questions. What do we believe in? Who are we becoming? What's our next mission? How, how can we best contribute? How do we belong to one another? Uh, and then you'll invite others in your organization to live in those same things. And so it's, this is human. This is human work. And we're humans that come to work. So how do we be most human and flourishing humans? So that was, it. what do you believe in? What kind of person do you want to be? What's your next mission? What do you bring to the table? And who do you belong to? Yeah. Mm, I love it. I love it. Bravo, Scott. You know, I remember years ago, I used to think that, hey, you know, when my wife and I uh, would take a vacation uh, away from the business, um, we would be kind of quiet and we would be humble about the vacation. We'd be like, mm -hmm. you know, let's not throw it in everyone's face that we're, that we're taking this vacation. Yeah. And I've made a complete 180 uh, about that because, you know, what, what do you need to hide? Why are you not being vocal, Kyle, Candace? Yeah. Why are you guys not being vocal about taking this vacation? Everyone should know when you're on vacation yeah. and how great your vacation was and how you want everyone else at the team to uh, mm -hmm. have a great vacation like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so whenever I make it a point that whenever we go on a vacation, you know, hey, <laughs> go on Instagram. Yeah. You could be talking about it all day. Whereas, you know, maybe yeah. 10, 15 <laughs> years ago, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that, you know, and it's all about um, exactly that last point is, is who do you want to be and who do you want to be a part of and how do you want your, uh, your, your team to thrive? So yeah, I yeah. think, uh, I think that's important. I love it. I love mm -hmm. it. So we are getting ready to go into our lightning round. I'm buckling up. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> we are getting ready to go into our lightning round where we like to ask you some tips, hacks, trips, tricks. Uh, from successful people. And uh, we love these because uh, we get to learn from you and what, what's going on in your world. So number one, are you currently reading any books? I'm always reading a lot. Yeah. So I've got several books open. I'm reading Hemingway, 
Uh, mm. <laughs> this old light. His book is like all of his. Yeah, it's light. Uh, but my son's got into fishing, so I started to read The Old Man in the Sea. Oh, that's a good one. Then I then I've been reading a call to arms because I don't know anything about World War One, uh, and I love good writing, love good stories. So Hemingway, um, I'm reading. I always read. Uh, I found out like a year ago on my on my Kindle app on my phone I can get free books because of Amazon Prime. So I, every night I read 30, 60 minutes of like spy novels, the super fluffy light spy stuff. And then uh, there's a guy I've been reading a lot, Daniel Siegel. Dan Siegel, he's UCLA. Neuro, I think he's a neurobiologist, whatever that means. I mean, I'm an accounting major, so I don't know what that means, but but it's the intersection of neuroscience and psychology and parenting and and meditation mindfulness. Uh, so I like reading about like spirituality, but through a lens of research, like science says, this is better for us. And then Richard Rohr is a guy, he's a Franciscan priest that I've read for probably 20 years. I read him daily, daily. He sends out a daily email. I've reread his books over and over. So I always have that kind of open with me in addition to reading scripture as I go. So I do a lot of reading. <laughs> nice. Reader. What, uh, what's your favorite book or books? Top two. Uh, I th- so I think authors, particularly for your audience, I've mentioned a couple times already, Patrick Lencioni, his books. And I like, if you, if you've ever read leadership or management books, uh, you've probably found that they're dry and boring and <laughs> Patrick's books aren't, they're fables, they're stories. Uh, so five dysfunctions of a team, the ideal team player, death by meeting. He's got, I think eight or nine or 10 books, but those are the top three. So I, he's someone that shaped my thinking the most when it comes to organizational health and culture um, and then, uh, Richard Rohr, the other guy I mentioned, anything by him has really changed me. Uh, so I've got a lot of light and fluffy reading, but those are two things that are Love informational. For me. Hey, make sure when you get through your, uh, world war one book that, that you watch that Peter Jackson. Um, Oh yeah. I want to see that. Yeah. The, the, I think it's called, they shall not grow old. It's fantastic. It's an old footage that he remastered. Oh, it's so good. And then 1917, which just was up for yeah. an Oscar last year. Very, very clever and creative. Yeah leap shot and uh, Hemingway I love that whole stream of consciousness for the old man in the sea it's a fun fun read made me feel really cool because mm-hmm. I read a Hemingway book that's the only one totally, I've ever exactly. read yeah, yeah. it's I it's think like it's the smallest too <laughs> yeah it's fun <laughs> <laughs> uh, personal daily rituals uh, I take a walk every day I'm a walker like an old man um Walking for me is thinking, it's, it's reorienting to nature, it's getting out of my office. Uh, so walk, I do a lot of journaling, um, and then playing with each one of my kids. Every day I got three kids, so doing something that's fun and play, especially quarantine because I'm home most all day. Yeah. Yeah. And then my wife and I do happy hour, I think every day. Uh, 4.30, 5, 5.30. We oh, there you go. The front yard or the backyard and with a drink or a cocktail and just check, catch up on the day. <laughs> Personal goals for the, uh, for the summer or year? I'm f- I'm f- I've been writing a book. I'm finishing the rough drafts today. That's my plan. Dude, I've tell got, us what's it about. Got an editor. Uh, it's about helping kids design meaningful life. So I've been, I've been writing for years through a blog, through our website. And I think it's, it's a part of, it's a part of, uh, 
I think the way the world works still, like if you're an author and written a book, people still add a lot of credibility to you. So I'm hoping, one, that it's a good book, but two, that it adds more credibility to the work we're trying to do with schools and kids. So it's, um, yeah, that's, that's been yeah. a lifelong goal. And I'm, I'm at least finishing a rough draft today. Nice. Do you have a target date for release? I like to, I'm, so I'm going to do self-publishing. So it's got to be quick. I found an editor and do it through Amazon. So I'm, the goal is by the end of August, by the time school starts again. Oh, wow. Bravo, so buddy. Pretty fast. Yeah. Bravo. Well, you have to let us know so we can uh, mm-hmm. push that out for you. All right. So where can everyone uh, find out a little bit more about you and what you got going on and, and what your passions mm-hmm. are? Yeah, the website that that we have for the U School, it's theuschool.com. And I'm kind of a a content junkie. So there's a lot of content. There's a lot of articles. There's a lot of videos. We have a podcast. Um, And it's it's in addition to helping kids, it's also a lot of the conversations that we have here, culture, team, uh, organizations, parenting. So that would be where you'd, if you want to find me or what we do, theuschool.com. Theuschool.com. You got it, buddy. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. Heck yeah. We'll have you thanks again for on season two. let me listen in to your conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on. Right. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Scott. An incredible, incredible uh, podcast with great information. I love the question. Uh, ask yourself, uh, if you had a thriving culture, what would it sound like? Uh, what would it look like? What would it behave like? That's powerful information and stuff there because I don't know that we ever do that level of self-reflection for the entire organization from our own vantage point. And then five key questions to live your life and align your life. What do you believe in? Uh, what kind of person do you want to be? Uh, what's your next mission? What do you bring to the table and who do you belong to? They use, Kyle, those most sound like questions you would ask yourself just as a mm-hmm. personal kind of examination you are. But I think if you answer those questions, you can better align yourself with the company and organization that's like you and on a mission like you so that you can plug into a culture that really motivates you and, and they'll appreciate someone like you even more because you're in such alignment. And so I don't know that that question is simply just a personal kind of examination, but I think you take those personal examinations and then transfer them into the marketplace. And that's when you can really find a connection with your organization where you go. Well, that all being said, we did promise that uh, you would share your IED story here at the (laughs) end. And and we let Scott go and, uh, and he's off and, uh, and we almost forgot. And so we don't want to mislead you because it is a great and powerful story, Kyle. So would you share with everyone the story of when you accidentally, inadvertently, unbeknownstly, um, I made up that last word, knelt on an IED. And where are we? We're in Afghanistan or Iraq? Southern Afghanistan. Let's do it. <laughs> sure. So I'll tell it, uh, I'll tell it in my uh, movie voice. Muskrat and I hustled up the rocky hill in Southern Afghanistan, looking for the right position to see what was going down in the village below. Marines were making a move on this four to seven mile stretch of land that was crawling with Taliban, and our job was to eradicate them. I was one of the ground force commanders and the senior tactical leader on the special forces side, and we had about 800 Marines with us as well. And we came to a tiny clearing and stopped. As I looked through my rifle scope to find the Marines, I picked up their position 
But in the visual search, I saw that the Taliban had figured out that the Marines' location and the TB were in the middle of making a move on them. Things were moving fast. Our guys were about to get blindsided. Muskrat was my JTAC, the guy who directs our air forces should we need support. And man, we needed support pronto. Muskrat was working his dial, setting coordinates while I talked him through what I was seeing when all of a sudden I heard him go silent. Then he jabbed me right in my side. I looked at Muskrat who looked back at me with the most solemn face I'd ever seen him give. And I said, what's up? He simply pointed to our feet. He didn't say a word. I looked down at where we were kneeling, shoulder to shoulder, and it was unmistakable. Two wires were coming out of the ground and pointing back in. We were standing on an IED. I looked at him. He looked back at me, both of us saying nothing. He certainly didn't need to tell me what was going on inside. It was the same thing that was going on in me. Both of us had been in many fights, running and gunning and shooting our way out of all kinds of situations. Cheating death was part of what we did as SEALs, and we did it all the time. But now, holding still like two statues on this Afghani hillside, death by IED made no sense. Like this, I remember thinking, after all we've been through, we're going to go down like this. Time was running out. I was responsible for the Marines down below, and the Taliban were closing in. Our EOD, the uh, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit, was hours away, and we were exposed and on a hill too long. Honestly, thinking back, we should have already been seen and taken out by an RPG. I looked down as the milliseconds, I mean milliseconds, were ticking by. There was no way out of this, but there had to be. I had to think. I'm thinking, and then all of a sudden I hear, I've got you. I heard a voice say it calmly, resolutely. I kind of looked around a little bit. I remember thinking, what the heck was that? And I heard it, I heard it again. I've got you. I'd given my life to Jesus many years before, and honestly, it changed me deep inside. I believe it was the only way I would have any idea who it was that was talking to me. Even though I had turned my back on him numerous times, God still spoke to me. And just like that, a calm descended over me like a cool mist. I turned to Muskrat, who was still wide-eyed and staring at me, and I said, go. Both of us knew I had him by about 60 pounds, so this was not a hero move. Uh, if he were to step off, he might make it. But at around 300 pounds with all of my gear, if I were to step off and remove my weight, both of us would likely go up in a blaze of glory. This was not a hero move. I say it again, it was not a hero move. Just go, dude, I said, it'll be all right. I could see in his face, he was like kind of about to argue and I'll never forget it. But as if realizing it was our only hope to at least save one of us and, and uh, come back to America and tell the, the story to my beautiful wife, he slowly backed off the ID, IED. When it didn't go off, he turned and bolted away, scrambling down the hill to a safe place where he could continue his job. The situation I suddenly found myself in was intense. If I stayed where I was, I, would, I was about to be shot off the hill. If I stepped off the IED, the only question would be how much of me would be left to try to save for the doctors. Meanwhile, the fate of the Marines was in the balance and I had to make a decision now. 
And then all of a sudden, I got you. That voice again. With no time to think, I'm assuming God was asking me to act in faith. I just say, Lord, I believe this is you. I'm stepping off. If if anything goes wrong, please take care of Candace. Let her know how much I love her. Again, this is all in, in se- within seconds. This whole story is seconds long, really, in real time. And just like that, I stepped off. The air support took out the Taliban, and we didn't lose one Marine that afternoon. The operation was a success. When the IED was ultimately dismantled, the EOD reported back to us that it was a 10-pound pressure release, which means that it had it detonated And if we would have survived, everything below our waist would have ended up probably all over that hillside. Uh, When when the dust settled, I met up with uh, Muskrat and we hugged it up and shared the moment. Terrific and memorable as it was, it was nothing compared to the moments I now share with my beautiful wife, my two girls, and my son who if not for the saving hand of God and calming voice of the Holy Spirit, I simply would not be here. Same goes for Muskrat. He now has two beautiful children. So if we would have lived, if we would have lived through that, you know, we most likely would not have our reproductive organs and all five of our children would not be here to this day. So that's my story. Lord, I give you all the glory and I thank you for saving me that day. Well, Kyle, first off, I'm glad you're here. I know that Candace and, and the kids are glad you're here. I know that our listeners are glad you're here. Uh, and most of all, uh, I'm grateful for the service and for your example of putting your life on the line in the special forces, uh, where this one was very real, but every day you faced a very similar threat. You may not have knelt on a landmine, but you never knew if a bullet had your name on it. And so I'm grateful for your sacrifice and, and I appreciate all you've done for us. And thank you for your service. Um, I'm also grateful um, for the work you do with One More Wave. You know, all of those veterans would have missed out on such a great organization as well. So thank you for sharing. Too, buddy. Uh, I know that uh, you've told that story a few times, um, but I wanted uh, our listeners to hear it as well. Keep giving him thanks. Right on, bud. All right, everyone, have a good day. Culture Force out. Trying to find my way home